welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, my name is Sarah Betts. I am the Senior Manager of Customer Support at Alice. We are a little bit of a different RevGen corporate gifting platform. We believe in the power of personalization and real human connections which ties really nicely into my support philosophy of real human connection. Awesome. I love it. And I've been so excited to get you on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Sarah, just because I think you're one of the most thoughtful leaders when it comes to building out like really delightful customer experiences and really kind of supporting your team. So to dive right in, um, would you be willing to kind of share a little bit about what your kind of general philosophy is when it comes to customer support? Absolutely. I have been really encouraged this last year seeing this shift to retention and CS because my longtime philosophy has been to have a business, you need customers. (laughs) And to keep those customers and to keep them paying you, sticking with you, it takes effort to make sure that they have what they need and that they are getting what they want from your product. So I think support teams are perfectly situated to actually increase revenue and increase the survivability of all of our companies. I love it. And can you maybe talk a little bit about what your team structure generally looks like right now at Atlas? Yeah. So we're really small, a lot smaller than people think we are, especially since we go head to head with some of the bigger players like Sendoso and ReachDesk, who much bigger companies, right? I have three direct reports and we're a little bit flat, although we have some specializations among those. Um, So we're all heads into the inbox, even I jump in. Um, And then I've got somebody who focuses a lot on data, uh, the recipient experience and security. I have somebody who focuses a little bit more on more technical issues um, and then project managing some of our specialty requests, like, you know, those really cool boxes that you see that are the branded and have the, the custom kit selection kind of thing going on. And then a newer member of my team who is, really taking an interest in integrations, you know, getting people connected to Salesforce, Marketo, all of that kind of stuff. Love it. Um, And I also am like so pleasantly surprised by when I hear like teams that I would have thought maybe had a dozen or more people being able to do just as much kick-ass work as you can do in such small, on, on a relatively small team. What are some of the ways that you just kind of have your structure set up so that everyone can really feel like they can really own their specialties within the team? That's a really good question. For one thing, I am ticket agnostic. We kind of do a really loose version of swarming. Everybody hits the inbox first thing and just, you know, grabs what they feel comfortable with. But we have a locked support channel so that we can share links to those tickets and be like, hey, you know, I am not sure about this question. We have a few specialists in our channel, but it allows us to be a little bit more free with what we're sharing. You know, we can share the, the personal identifying information. We can share some of the, the company things that you wouldn't necessarily want in a public Slack channel. Um, so that really empowers people to, to ask questions. And I find that is the most important thing. If you can create an environment where people are willing to ask questions and share publicly, everybody is learning together. So that's probably the most powerful. And then the other thing is we celebrate each other. So when somebody gets tasked with, you know, say this project management type role. It's not, oh, I didn't get it. I 
I, I didn't get to do something cool in the job. It's everybody knows that they have a place on the team and that they're celebrated. One thing I do is we have a weekly meeting and we start that meeting with kudos. So like we're, be, we're literally beginning with the thank yous, with the praise, with the celebration. And I think that helps a lot. Love it. I have a couple of follow-on questions for what you shared there. One, when you go with this weekly meeting, how long is your weekly meeting? What does it generally look like? Do you have an agenda? How is it structured? How do you ensure that everyone feels engaged in that meeting and it doesn't just feel like it's work? Yeah, so um, it's every week, generally on Wednesdays. So like nice in the middle of the week. I, I've tried it earlier. I've tried it later. And it feels like it middle of the week is a good wait for what's what has passed and what is coming. It's very consistent. I have a slide deck in Google Drive that I copy every time. So the structure, the flow, the data that we're going to see, everybody knows what to expect. Uh, ironically, that came from my days as a preschool teacher. <laughs> structure gives kids safety so that they know what's coming and they don't have to spend brain power being surprised or anticipating the unknown. Um, if you've ever had a job interview, you know the stress of anticipating the unknown. So I try to take that off the table. Um, the other thing I do is these, after those kudos, is we have a project update and everybody owns their project area. So have you been updating the help center? You get to tell me about it. Have you onboarded some new customers? You get to tell me about it. I try to do the minimal amount of talking. They hear from me all the time. Nobody needs to keep hearing me talk. And then the other thing is that we go over anything that's hard in that meeting together. So the customers that are struggling, like who do we need to watch out for in the inbox? Um, what are the high priority bugs? What are the things that are wrong in the, in the platform so that we're all aware of what's going on and nobody has to be like, oh, I saw that you answered that email yesterday. I already ran into that bug. You know, that's not happening. Um, and then it's structured so that we have that. And when we're done, we're done. So we don't fill the 30 minutes just to fill the 30 minutes. If it's a 10 minute meeting, it's a 10 minute meeting and we're done. Um, we have separate social time. So every Friday we have uh, our support social hour or yeah, it's like 30 minutes. And that's just, that can go over, but that's more of our free time. And then anything that needs correction, I do in the moment. So that my team has learned that you're not gonna open a meeting with me. You're not gonna join a Zoom call and out of the blue here that you're doing something wrong. If I have to make corrections, it's privately, it's one-to-one -one, and it is the moment I see it. That is so smart. And something that you kind of hinted at twice now, which is giving people and making sure they feel comfortable raising the hard or the uncomfortable topics or the things where they might look dumb if they bring it up. Um, mm -hmm. And you kind of mentioned it in the originally kind of how you like swarm tickets in the morning and then also in these weekly calls. What are some of the strategies that you like encourage even like the newest member of your team to kind of go in there and be totally comfortable being like, hey, you know what? I don't understand this. Can you help? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. So I have a pretty clear onboarding process where they go through and some of that is watching calls, you know, calls with our sales team, calls with the CSM so they can kind of see how we relate to customers. And I I don't pick and choose those based on who looked perfect. Like some of those include like, oh, my bad, I'm sorry. So they see the culture of apologizing or the, the culture of correcting on the fly, the, the, the culture of ownership from the beginning. We also have some public channels so we have like a public support channel. We do internal support. We we use our own app. Our logo is the hummingbird. I just think this is really cute. Our logo is the hummingbird. So we're called Charmers. Um, and somebody came up with the term drinking our own nectar. So we drink our own nectar. 
And so I, I take ownership and I try to model this. I make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. I'm a human being. And I always go back to that thread where I said something that maybe was incorrect. And instead of editing it, I will cross it out, you know, use the strike through text and say, I was wrong. This is the correct information. And I will go to my team if I made a mistake and I will say, I got that wrong. I'm sorry. Here's the correct information. So it's never like this big, oh my gosh, there's there's not a big meeting called of we have to take someone to task. It's on the fly. It's in the moment. It's real. Because I've learned the best way to make an apology is to be clear about the apology and then immediately change your behavior. That is so smart. So it sounds almost like kind of a mix of just modeling the behavior you want your team to model mm-hmm. and also not being afraid to show the imperfect stuff within the onboarding. Absolutely. Like I would never ask my team to do something that I wouldn't do. And for a lot of the people that I've managed or worked with, they haven't seen that kind of behavior. They've, you know, we were raised in a generation where our parents never made mistakes. Nope, they were never wrong. Um, our teachers never made mistakes. They were never wrong. I I have learned to do this through trial and error. I model it with my kids. I want people to learn from me by watching me do the behavior I expect because I can write articles. I can write confluence docs. I can preach all I want. And that is never going to be um, internalized the way watching my behavior is internalized. Yeah, that is such a good point. How much of this do you think can be taught? And how much of it do you expect to just kind of look for when you're actually going out and hiring a new person within a sport role, that you're looking for these traits of someone who can apologize and admit when they're wrong and, you know, is someone who's curious and wants to get better. Yeah, that's really tricky, especially in a job interview situation, because the nature of a job interview is an extreme power imbalance. You know, I have the authority to hire you and decide if you're going to get paid on a monthly basis. Um, so that is tricky, but I. I try to ask questions like, you know, when was the last time you learned something new? And tell me about that. The ability to learn something new requires the ability to be okay with the suck. My grandma used to say, you you have to be willing to do something bad to do something new. You know, nobody nobody picks up a bike and just rides off down the road. You, you have to fall off your bike a lot. So if you're willing to learn something new as an adult, that tells me that you're willing to make some mistakes and be a bit messy in that process. I will also ask, especially for leadership positions or roles where you might influence product decisions, that kind of thing. Tell me about the last thing that went wrong, you know, whether that's at home or at work. Um, I want to know that you can admit that something went wrong and you can tell me how you recovered from it. I love those questions, especially that one about something you learned recently. I think, I mean, I can imagine that you've gotten some like really great examples that maybe you didn't even expect. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had somebody tell me that he'd always wanted to go fishing with his kids, but that wasn't something that he had done growing up. And so he went out and he, he learned how to go fishing and then he could take his kids fishing. And I was like that, gosh, I love that. (laughs) Like not just learn something new for yourself, but learn something new so that you can share experiences with somebody and they then have that knowledge. I love that. So you make the hire, you find someone amazing. What does your onboarding process look like? Um, there's the standard, you know, first couple of days, fill out all the paperwork, make the insurance selections, all of that kind of thing. Part of that onboarding starts before the hire, actually. The final interview is somebody with the team that they will be on. So um, 
you sit down and it's it's you with the team I am not involved and I give my team very clear instructions to answer all of the questions as honestly as they feel comfortable at asking or answering, even if it makes me look bad. Um, that I don't want them to anticipate that, oh, they might not like that leadership style because if you're interviewing for a company, you have the right to hear how that team functions because that should be your decision. So um, starts there and that I think makes an impact that you're like, wow, I got to talk one-on-one with the team I'm actually working with. And the next thing is that everybody on the team knows things about support. So that person shadows everybody on the team. You know, they watch them answer tickets. They they get that feel for how we speak, our voice, um, and they do a Zoom. So it's not just watching people answer answering tickets in our help desk, please help out, but also watching people on calls on Zoom because we do Zoom support for our customers or watching them work through Slack. We do a lot of internal support on Slack, whether it's, you know, direct messages from the sales team on the fly, like, I'm at a call, I can't remember what's the answer, to actually people trying to use our product and asking, you know, how to how to do certain things. Um, so that gives them a really strong idea of what the voice of support looks like at Alice. And then um, pretty early on, I have them just look through the, the inbox and be like, what, what do you think you know the answer to? And have them answer questions. I try to get them doing that early um, because the sooner, the sooner you can start answering questions, the sooner you learn, you know, we, we learn by teaching. So um, yeah, I definitely don't do a long drawn out six weeks before you touch your first ticket kind of a thing. It's, it's very new hire led. When, when are you comfortable, right? When are you ready to leap? That also gives me the chance to correct in the moment to say like, oh, you know, this part of the response was great. We need to tweak that ending just a little bit so that our sign off is a little more professional or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Do you find that you naturally find people who are curious and wanting to jump in right away? Um, yeah. Or do you sometimes find people who are a little bit more timid and maybe need a little bit more handholding um, before they start answering tickets? Um, I definitely find people who are more eager, you know, just that they're willing to learn, they're willing to participate in that team interview kind of kind of nature. But I have had people that are timid and some of it's cultural. You know, I've, I've Part of my team is from other countries. And in America, we have this pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get in there and be independent kind of a thing. Whereas that's that's not universal across the world. But there's a lot of cultures where, especially in customer support, you're the lowest person on the ladder and you're not valued. And if you make a mistake, you're out. Like there's no second chances. So in those cases, it's taken me some time to really build that trust and let let those hires know that. I hired you because I believe in you, not because you're a warm body. And so I, I reiterate that a lot. I hired you because of who you are, because of what you already are, not because I, I think that with enough grinding and pounding, you will be what I want you to be. And I think that message takes a while to sink in for people who have, have been, you know, have been raised in another culture, but lots of encouraging. And sometimes I'll just force and be like, nope, you're going to take this ticket write a response. You don't have to send it. I'll read it before it goes out. But um, yeah, I definitely push for that independence and and try and make mistakes. And I have a, I have verbed Miss Frizzle. I say, let's frizzle it. Um, you know, get in there. Let's make mistakes, take chances, get messy. <laughs> like Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. And uh, it's funny, but that laughter makes them realize I, I really mean it. Get in there, make messes, take chances. I love that. 
Um, and I love basically everything Trey said. Do you think, given that you have like you know, a very inclusive team that is global around the world, do you think a lot of it is literally just repeating kind of the same sort of repeating the same thing over and over again until somebody really, you know, feels more comfortable in like starts to trust you and starts to trust everyone else in the team? Or are there other tactics that you're doing to kind of get people to feel more bought in and inclusive within the culture, within your within your team's culture? Good question. A lot of it's repetition, just a lot of repetition. And a lot of times people don't believe me until they do make a mistake and like a fairly large mistake. And they find out that I didn't get mad. I didn't yell. I didn't scream. Um, in fact, if somebody comes to me and reports a mistake, I say, thank you so much for letting me know. Like, that's what we start with. Not like, oh no, or oh crap. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for bringing this to me. The other thing I do is we have a public celebrations channel in our Slack. And I think if your company does not have a public celebrations channel, you need to pause this podcast and you need to go make one like right now. We It's called Celebrate the Charmers. And anytime something good happens, whether that's you know a work anniversary, uh, somebody got married, um, somebody helped you with something, somebody pulled something off for a customer that you were just like, I don't think this is ever going to work. And it happened. Um, somebody fixed something that was just irksome for a long time. Those get posted in that channel. And that builds that culture cross-functionally because we don't just say thank you to people in support. We say thank you to people in engineering. We say thank you to people in marketing. You know, across the board, it's that I, I recognize your contributions and I celebrate that. And I think that's been really uh, impactful for the whole company. Love that. And how often are you doing one-on-ones with your team? Every week. Yeah, right now we're doing 30 minutes and they own it. So that is that is not my time. Awesome. And do you have an example of like, you know, how your team owns it? It's their time. How do you usually encourage, especially if someone is a little bit more timid um, and maybe not used to having like dedicated weekly one-on-ones where they really get to control the agenda? Um, how do you encourage them to structure it to make the most use of their time? So um, one of the examples that I have just from today is one of my employees came to me and said, I am slammed today. I, I cannot, can I move our one-to-one? I was like, of course you don't. You can move your one-to-one. You, you own the meeting. It's yours. Move it. So she moved it. Um, the other thing I do is, yeah, it's very different to have that sort of relationship with a manager. I know, especially people that come from non-startup culture. So those first several meetings, I I ask lots of questions. And some of it comes from Laura Hogan's one-on-one resources, which I think are super valuable. But things like, what do you do when you're stressed? When you want to celebrate something, how do you reward yourself? When is the last time that you just felt really amazing and super proud of yourself? Or when was the last time you felt really down if they feel up for sharing that? And a lot of those first few one-to-ones are just those getting to know you kind of questions of how are things at home? You know, what was school like for you? What does what does a weekend look like for you? What are your interests? With, how do you go on adventures? And that starts to build that relationship of trust just like a friendship where you get to know about somebody, you have that regular cadence of meetings. And then over time, they start bringing things up because I always ask, you know, how can I, what can I move out of the way for you? How can I clear your path? Um, what can I do to make your days better? And they start bringing those things up. It's not in the first one-to-one. It's, you know, a couple months down the line and, and everybody has their their own, I call it the warmth 
cycle. You know, when do you start feeling comfortable with somebody? Um, but it does come and they, they start bringing things to me, even outside those one-to-ones, like, this is really frustrating me. And again, thank you so much for bringing this to me. And then we talk about it and I check back in on the one-to-one, but some people, they want to troubleshoot in one-on-one. They're like, you know, take a look at the spreadsheet with me. Let's, let's dig into this integration and find out why this isn't working. And other people just want to talk about their weekend and whatever makes them feel comfortable with me as a human being is what I want them to be doing in their one-to-one. And do you at all push like career development or helping them figure out, you know, if they want to raise or if they're trying to get a raise or trying to get, you know, promoted, something like that, like in these one-on-ones, or is it really just strictly kind of taking the lead off of each employee? Oh, absolutely. I, about once a month, um, I ask questions like, you know, are you where you want to be? What, what is fascinating to you at Alice? Um, one of the things that if you ask my employees, will tell you, they always laugh. Um, I say, if your goal is to become an airline pilot, then my goal is to get you there. I can't promise you'll fly a plane at Alice, but <laughs> I will I will find the resources that you need to get there. Um, so that can look like, you know, I want to know more about security. I go outside the one-on-one and, and find some courses, articles, blogs, people to follow and provide those resources. And then, you know, we start looking for ways to do that. Like, okay, let's let's take a look at this gift. What went wrong here? Where? Why does this look suspicious? Is there anything that you would look at in other gifts that we've learned from this one? Um, so that does happen there, but also outside. So you know, I'll I'll hit them and be like, hey, do you have a do you have a minute to talk about this goal that you had? Um, I have some some information for you. So yes, it comes up in the one to one, but it also comes up outside the one on one, in the moment or you know when something like that is happening. Uh, recently, we had somebody somebody's campaign just got hit by a scammer. It, it happens with the marketing world. You know, you're promising gift cards. People want gift cards. So, you know, I dropped what I was doing and got on one-on-one and we just, we went through it. You know, what are, what are some of the signatures of this, the scammer that we've identified? These are scams. Where else can we go find that? So that kind of thing that, that in the moment, identifying those, those moments for growth when they've expressed an interest. And sometimes even if they haven't expressed an interest, if I'm like, you know, this person is so organized. They're so good at doing this. They're so interested in data. I'll start feeding them the spreadsheets or, you know, the CSVs pull data and be like, hey, I just thought you you might kind of be interested in this. Take a look and tell me what you think of it. So sort of leaving those breadcrumbs for exploration based on what I know their skills are is one way I, I handle that, which I think also from education, there's this philosophy in education is sometimes that reluctant learner um, as a teacher, I would approach that. I called it uh, guerrilla teaching. So do they want to read? No. Are they fascinated with Spider-Man? Cool. My classroom now has a lot of Spider-Man comic books. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. I love that. And shifting gears a bit, I'm not sure how I didn't know that you were originally a preschool teacher. Uh, <laughs> I love, love diving in, particularly on this podcast with people who have kind of squiggly career paths. How did you get <laughs> from preschool teacher to badass support manager in a tech startup? Oh my gosh, that was a path. Um, I originally went to college for consumer affairs. I wanted to be a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. and save people from evil big companies that were, you know, making cribs that caught on fire, stuff like that that was happening in the 90s. And um, absolutely fell in love with 
the child development path, that child psychology, human development, how we work as family systems. I'm definitely a systems thinker. So I made that switch and I was not working like I graduated school. My husband at the time was getting his master's degree at University of Washington and 9-11 happened. And my goal had been to start a consultancy to build childcare centers in offices. So, you know, we were starting to get these tech offices and things. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if the daycare was in the office so parents could on their lunch, go hang out with their kids, not have these long drives to daycare, that kind of thing. But of course, once those planes struck the Twin Towers, the economy just sort of went belly up. And I decided to be a stay-at-home mom for a while. I was married to a mechanical engineer and, you know, he had plenty of money and I had, uh, wound up having some kids and did that and was, uh, it wasn't the best situation. We'll say that. Um, and after my divorce, I needed a job <laughs> really, really bad. I had no work experience. I had, I had worked in, you know, through college, but after college I had, I had left. So it had been like 1991 till about 2012. And a friend of mine worked for a company called Cultures for Health. And I did a lot of cooking, yogurt making, cheese making, all of that. And she was like, oh, you know how to do all this stuff. We're actually hiring a CSM or for our, for our company to help people troubleshoot these starters. Would you be interested in a job? And of course, I jumped on that um, and really fell in love with customer support because it has those elements of education where you are teaching somebody how to use a product. And helping them find success and every every moment when somebody be like oh, I did it I made yogurt I was like yes, it was like these little celebrations all day long um, and from there I I took over that support team and and started optimizing our processes because until then it was basically just emails coming in that was it so I wrote out documentation I started writing recipes for people to use our products switched us over from Skype we were old school Skype and started using Slack and discovered Help Scout actually built us out on a true help desk um, email system. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. I love it. What is maybe the most, you kind of hinted at this a little bit, but what's maybe the most unconventional skill or trait that you had from your education background and your consumer affairs education background that you now use every single, almost every single day or at least every single week um, in a support manager? I would say my knowledge of brain development has honestly been the most helpful. Understanding how the parts of our brain work together or override each other. Um, I always I always use the example of like, we need to calm the hind brain, that animal brain, because that brain thinks that we're dying. Um, we need to calm that first, and then we can engage the frontal lobe where the actual critical thinking happens. And I use that every day, absolutely every day. I love it. Do you have an example? Oh, yeah. Um, so I work with a lot of people who are, you know, directors of demand, gen marketing directors and in some way, sales leaders, people who are coming up at the end of the quarter and, you know, like everybody else, maybe our numbers aren't looking the best this quarter. So um, like I had somebody who was trying to pull reports, their reports weren't working the way they expected them to. and it, it was tense. <laughs> it was a lot of, I need this fix now. This is horrible. This is, this is terrible. And instead of going, oh my gosh, you're just on the wrong tab. It was, hey, I get it. It's end of quarter. And these reports are coming in a little bit slow. 
I let's hop on a call and let's talk. Right there, that person knew that I wasn't going to tell them they were wrong. I was going to tell them that I get it. And we've all been end of quarter trying to pull reports, making sure our numbers are ready to present to our own leadership. So being able to recognize that in the moment that she wasn't mad at our team, he didn't actually hate our app. She was scared that she wasn't going to have the data that she needed to justify her department's existence. And so having that empathy and that understanding and being able to speak to that before you try to fix the problem makes the problem easier to understand and makes the solution easier to take. I love it. That's such a great example. I want to shift gears a little bit because I know I can talk about like this, all these topics for hours on end, but I do want to get to a couple of lightning round questions. Okay, hit me. If you had to write a book tomorrow, what would you write it about? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. <laughs> my my brother always says that he would like to listen to Terry Gross review my book on her on her NPR show. Um, I think I this is not going to be expected, but I would write a book about um, family abuse cycles and how to break those. Got it. What would be the biggest takeaway you'd want someone to get from that book? That generational trauma is real, but so is generational joy, and that there's ways to build that. Yeah, that's a great and a very deep message. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Oh, so many. I would have a massive dinner party. I frequently find myself wanting to go have dinner with my grandma, honestly. She was born in early 1900s, so she lived through the Dust Bowl and she lived through the um, the stock market crash. She worked in a speakeasy. She made candy. She, you know, she did all these things. She lived on a ranch um, and she was the first female senator in Idaho. And I would love, died when I was 18. So just as I was starting to find who I was, I lost my grandma. I would love to be able to sit down with her and as, a, as an adult, get her stories and her experiences and what living through all of that was like for her. I love that. And I'm sorry that you didn't really get to have that conversation when you were an adult. Yeah, it happened. She was, I'm, I was a late late in life baby and my mom was a late in life baby so that left a long thread of ages between me and my grandmother yeah I bet shifting gears but what's one book that you'd recommend that any leader particularly in a remote first or a hybrid team should read there's a lot of them I honestly I just sort of follow Jeremy Markey around and read whatever he reads but I just finished thinking in systems and it was a delightful read. Like I said, I am sort of a systems thinker anyway, but instead of looking at problems at the level the problem is existing, that reminder to step outside and see what what system does that problem exist in? Uh, because sometimes the levers that we think we need to move to change, to make a change, are not the levers that are going to have a big impact. I think that's one. It's recency bias, totally, but that's a good one. Um, and then uh, the four disciplines of execution, I think any leader should absolutely read. I love it. And I love every time it's been go. I don't ask this question every time, but every, every time I have asked it, I tend to get different answers. And I love that. Um, and <laughs> the last question, well, the second to last question. Um, if you could send a message to yourself back from 
2013, so 10 years ago, in the past, mm-hmm. what would the message be? Um, that I am right and that I'm on the right path. Uh, definitely 10 years ago. It's, it's amazing to think back 10 years and see how different my life was. But I was making a lot of really hard decisions and I was in the midst of a lot of hard, hard shit. And I knew somewhere deep inside myself that if I kept taking the next step, that I would find success. And I remember in um, I was in a meeting with my lawyer going through the divorce and he was saying, you know, well, we don't want to make any predictions that would put your income over 40,000 because you just, you would not be able to make more than $40,000. And I was like, dude, I, within two years, I will be over that, far over that. And he was like, (laughs) whatever, you know, he totally shot me down. And I would love to go back to me and be like, babe, you have no idea where you will be in 10 years, like beyond your wildest dreams. Love that. And that's such a great, uh, like positive way to uh, end this episode. Um, But it's been amazing chatting with you, Sarah. Where can listeners of the Remote Workout Podcast find you online? I am not a huge social media junkie, but I am on LinkedIn. Um, It is ironically the one place I use my married name, which is Sarah Betts Dunn. Um, But mostly just Sarah Betts. You can find me. I'm uh, I'm pretty findable. And then, um, yeah, I think that's it. That's pretty much where I exist online. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you again for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much, Jessica. I have just enjoyed everything about what you've written and done ever since I became aware of you. And it's such a joy to be sitting here talking with you today. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights. 